Well, I was really blessed last week uh, as we celebrated baptism, and um, just, just I, I heard it from others too, just the sense of the Spirit's presence among us, and that's always a special time for people being baptized and for families and for a church family, and so that was, that was really awesome. And uh, I've been kind of living on the afterglow of that all week long. And uh, looking forward, I, I wanted to show you these pictures this week. We've had lots of people in the church kind of busily working on the Advent boxes, and this is a very much a team effort. We kind of made our own little, it's called Seek It. I forget the game that originally that came from, but you know, you, you throw those out and uh, you find the things that they have in common. Uh, these are just some of the different pieces. Those are candles in the boxes. Uh, this is an Advent calendar. We have a new special way to make Advent calendars. Actually, each one of those is kind of a big card that you can string together. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's part craft project, but it's also meant to be just engaging for you as adults, but especially as kids, in the, the message and the theme and the anticipation of Advent and looking forward to the birth of Christ. And so um, that's coming. That's what's, that's what's going to hit, hit uh, I don't know when it's going to hit, it's going to drop next Sunday, so be here. Uh, we started a new series called Roll With It, and it's about cultivating thanksgiving gratitude and contentment with all that the Lord has provided for us. And it fits in perfectly for this time of year as we kind of enter our way towards Thanksgiving and, and just uh, looking back over the blessings that God has provided for us over this last year. And being content isn't just about material possessions. It's about learning to be at ease with where you and I are right now. And what a gift that could be for all of us. It's a taste of God's peace. It's a taste of his rest that he can provide for us. In a world that often leaves us feeling dissatisfied, God can help us be content. Well, uh, when I say contentment is being at ease, uh, I need to make a distinction. Because someone brought this up to me last week. Uh, Being at ease is different than living a life of ease. And uh, a very, very important distinction. And being content with what you have stands in stark contrast with that feeling of just being comfortable, if you know what I mean. And I think all of us like to be comfortable, at least on some level. I know that's kind of a sliding scale, like what is comfortable for one person isn't comfortable for another person. I had an uncle who like always set the thermostat for like 58 degrees, and that was comfortable for him, but like no one else. But he was just tougher than the rest of us, I think. Um, But the battle for contentment, and and folks who, some folks, and I'll put myself in this camp, the the battle is is for contentment. We're trying to be there, like constantly feeling dissatisfied. Oh, I just wish this was better, or I had this, or whatever it might be. But other folks really struggle with that contentment piece, or I'm sorry, the comfort piece, and constantly pursuing, like, I just want to be comfortable. And... um, when you're in that state of mind, uh, folks who are just comfortable, the goal really is not to rock the boat. And so when you hear the phrase, roll with it, you know, the sermon series that we're doing, it's tempting to hear that as just kind of take a really passive, a really insulated approach to life. Oh, just roll with it. That's the goal that we want to get to. And years ago, uh, I was at a gathering and there was other covenant pastors there that I was meeting and and I met this, this guy, 
a church planner, a pastor, and it was kind of his second career. He had, he had successfully owned and operated a sawmill. So you can imagine, he looked like a lumberjack. He was this big, tough, gnarly dude. Uh, worked very, very hard throughout his whole life. Uh, felt God calling him to sell the business and move into pastoral ministry, which he did, and he planted this church. And so I'm hearing him just describe what the last couple of years, how much hard work it had been, uh, how God had blessed them. I mean, there's people coming to faith. There's people coming back to church. They were very, very, very uh, engaged with, with a low-income community. They had a thrift store at their church. They, they did all kinds of really amazing stuff. And uh, so as he's sharing there, I made a comment about how wonderful that must feel. I mean, church planting is no sure thing. I mean, it's really hard. And he uh, they had all these blessings, and I, and I used the word content. I can't remember exactly what I said, but I do remember his reaction. I must have said something like, wow, it just must make you feel content. And he like visibly changed, like his facial expression. And he says to me, he's like, I don't ever want to be content. You know? And he's like, that is not what God has called me to be. That is not what God wants our church to be, is content. And, you know, I kind of sat there and I was like, okie dokie. Trying to make small talk. <laughs> Didn't mean to offend you. But I've, I've since learned that there's a crowd of people who I'm partially convinced are like type A++++ in their personality that associate the idea of being content, being content with kind of being lazy or lacking faith, or living in such a way that they don't need to rely upon God. And uh, there's actually a book that's, that's out there. It's literally, it, literally it's called Holy Discontent. It's by Bill Hybels. And I was reading a review of it this, uh, this week. It was a blog, a guy named Kyler Briscoe. And he was recalling the passage of Scripture that we were using last week from the Apostle Paul, where Paul is saying, you know, in any and every circumstance... I've learned to be content, whether I have, you know, great, if, whether I'm living in plenty or living in need, he, he, goes, on, he, he goes on about that. And so uh, Kyler is reacting to what the Apostle Paul says, and we'll put this on the screen for you, and he writes this. He says, when you're too content with things, you become comfortable. And whenever you're comfortable, you settle. Comfort is the greatest threat to change. I think the Apostle Paul is teaching us to be content with what's going on for us and not, and not with what's going on around us. Be content with your blessings, but not with the barriers in this world. I thought that was a very accurate or a very articulate way to kind of describe um, the difference here. And uh, he, he goes on to, to define holy discontentment as feeling uneasy about something wrong in our world, which also upsets God, and taking action to fix it. So, by no means do we want to confuse being content with being complacent or being complicit in what's going on in this world, because a lot of it upsets God. And the Holy Spirit does stir us into action from time to time, or as my grandma Bolgi also say, as I used to say, she's, the Holy Spirit will put a bee in your bonnet. I love that phrase. This, you know, pioneer lady. 
Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit will put a bee in your bonnet to get busy, to make something happen. You just you feel this level of discontentment with life that stirs you into action. And, and we have to listen to that, pay attention to it, because that's God. Uh, I had a friend, uh, one friend ever in my entire life. Uh, I had a friend once, a long time ago, um, this is while we were living in Bellingham, and she started her own nonprofit out of the sense of holy discontentment. And this is, you know, like 10, 15 years ago when, when we kind of as a society were just starting to realize, like, uh, you know, the evil ugliness of human trafficking and how prevalent it, it is. And this is, we're in Bellingham, it's a border town, um, you know, and we're scared of Canadians up there, so... Sorry, I looked right at Evan as I was saying that, and I'm like, he's from Canada. I have to take a shot, right? Uh, and, and he's like, yeah, we want to keep you out of Canada, actually. Um, it's a border town. Uh, you know, you've got customs, and you've got uh, salt water there, Puget Sound. It's a college town. I mean, there's, if you're in law enforcement, let's just say there's lots of extracurricular happenings around places like that. And uh, so sh- my friend is just this, you know, average suburban mom, and she can't sleep at night. She thinks, I got to do something. So she starts this nonprofit. They work with law enforcement agencies and, and local, uh, other local nonprofits to help women escape the evils of the sex trade or, or just to get a, a new, fresh start in life. That's holy discontentment. And from time to time, God will stir in our lives to do something like that. So, don't roll with the status quo, that's not what I'm saying, but do roll with the Lord and learn to cultivate contentment. And if there's two things that can stunt our growth of contentment, it's wanting more and more, or as we might call that, greed, and it's this pursuit of comfort we might say that chasing, and we might say that as you're chasing after a life of ease. And this morning, we're going to see what we can learn from two different Old Testament passages which illustrate this point. And I am going to virtually guarantee that you've never heard and will never hear both of these passages preached at the same time ever again in your life. Okay? So, I mean, this is special stuff. Pay attention. Um, I, I do know how this so happened that they both ended up on the same thing, but I. It's like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but we're doing it, okay? And our first passage, as you may have guessed from the children's message just a few minutes ago, comes from 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And this is at the beginning of the reign, or this is during the reign of, of a king named Ahab. And as you read through Old Testament books, you know, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, where, there, where there's all, it's the, the kings of Israel, Often you'll just see names like King so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord and, you know, was no more. And then they go on to the next king. I mean, you have to be a special kind of bad to get as much written about yourself as King Ahab has, okay? So there's lots and lots and lots in 1 Kings about King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And as a country music fan, I'm always impressed, like, how often she gets shouted she gets a shout out, you know, Jezebel, you Jezebel. I mean, that's kind of like common vernacular. Come on, you guys listen to country music, don't you? But nobody ever includes Ahab, and I've wondered why that is. Like, it's always Jezebel. She was really nasty. Anyway, 
Um, Ahab has repeatedly disobeyed God's orders, and finally a prophet shows up and says God's going to judge him, which you think would put him on his best behavior. But instead, this happens. 1 Kings chapter 21. Some time later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is so close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Verse 4, So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. This is one of the reasons I love the Old Testament. I mean, you can just see that, right? He's the king, right? And here he is, laying on his bed, moping around, sulking and refusing to eat. He's just pouting like a little kid. And um, there was an incident. I, that, that's, you know this is going to be good when you, oh, there was an incident. What happened? And this vineyard is conveniently located next to his palace. And, and the children's thing, I, even though they were trying to be funny there, I think, I think they struck gold. Like When you think about this whole, and imagine how this whole interchange happened, Ahab wants to use the vineyard as a garden, not a vineyard. And in exchange, he's going to give him a better vineyard. Now, imagine that this was your family farm that's been in your family for generation after generation. And um, how does this sound to you, this you know, rich dude rolls up, who also, also happens to be a king, and is like, hey, your farm sucks. I'm going to plow it under and plant some vegetables. How much you want for it? Now, having grown up on a farm myself, I, it's the weirdest thing. Like, eventually, my, my dad, my family sold that piece of property, and it was like the hardest thing for my dad to do. And, and you're thinking, it's just a piece of dirt, right? No, there is an emotional connection to, I, you know, worked hard, or I, I, with my blood, sweat, and tears, tilled this land, and my grandfather did, and my grandfather. So, so what Ahab does here is extremely insulting. But what Naboth says in return, I'm just not sure about Naboth, Okay. I mean, when you're thinking, like, the dude's the king of Israel. And he basically says, God forbid I sell it to you. We don't know how he said that. And it's important. Because imagine, did he say, God forbids I sell it to you? Or did he say, God forbid I sell it to you? I mean, how does that sound? It doesn't really matter. Because we know with Abraham's reaction... Like, it hit home. He was distraught, depressed. He's the king. He's, he's moping around. He's refusing to eat. And later his wife says, you know, why are you so miserable? And he says, because I said to the boss, sell me your vineyard if you prefer. I'll give you another one in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. So when you look at this, you kind of wonder, like, 
So what's upsetting him? Is it the insubordination, the defiance of his authority? I'm the king and you refuse to do this? Well, I don't think so. Because Ahab would have bristled, right, in, in the text. Or, you know, he would have called out the guards or, you know, called them names or whatever. No, he goes home and he sulks. That's greed. He's just didn't get his way. And all he can think about is, I just want, I just want to plant some vegetables. I won't eat it. You know, it's just around and around and around and around and around his head. So his wife, Jezebel, steps in, hatches this plot to have Naboth murdered. And you keep just wondering, why would Ahab care so much about this little vineyard? He's the king of Israel. He obviously has lots of vineyards. But greed has no direct relationship to your actual net worth. Think about that. Greed has no direct relationship to how much money you have or how much money you don't have. You can be as rich as a king or as poor as a pauper and still get tripped up with greed. And greed will drive you to do some pretty stupid things. So when Jesus says, speaking to the people, he's, this is in Luke, he says, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. He's trying to free us from this mindset of more, 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 more. Because when is enough enough? Contentment, on the other hand, is this feeling of peace that the Lord wants to grow in our life, definitely related to our material possessions, but also to just our life in general, about how good God is, how much he's provided, how much he's going to take care of us, how much we have this, this contentment. And when you see that in people, it is so, so, so attractive. You go, I want that. It's contentment. So if greed makes cultivating contentment difficult, so does the endless pursuit of comfort. And during the Exodus, after God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, he led them into uh, um, a desert wilderness because he wanted to. So between Egypt and the Promised Land, there's this very arid desert area, the Mount Sinai uh, wilderness. It's, like I said, very arid, but they, they can't have heavy seasonal rains and you get flooding like we're probably going to experience today. But let's not kid anyone. This was going to be a challenging journey. This was going to be tough, tough on the Israelites. And there's thousands of people, there's livestock, they're living off the land. And as they move towards the Promised Land, they're camping and sometimes they camp in places that are very beautiful and nice, like an oasis. Most often, they are camping in very barren landscape. And so, um, like, on three or four occasions, the people start to grumble. They complain to Moses. And this is an example. This comes from uh, Exodus chapter 16. We'll put this on the screen for you. Um, the whole community started, uh, started out, Elam is this very beautiful desert oasis. And then they came to the desert. And it was between this place where they arrived that in the desert, the whole community told Moses and Aaron they weren't happy with them. The Israelites said to them, We wish the Lord had put us to death in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out into this desert 
You must want this entire community to die of hunger. Sounds so dramatic. But imagine if you're Moses and Aaron. And like I said, there are multiple times they say things like this. We wish that we were back in Egypt. And whenever you see that expressed, um, I think what they're really saying is, I just want to be comfortable. You think about what they've been through. They're literally being led by a cloud during the day that's the Lord's presence, and at night it's a pillar of fire. In Egypt, there were countless miracles that they saw performed to to help God get them out of Egypt. They walked across dry land and the Red Sea. The seas were parted like walls on each side. I mean, how many times do you have to see God moving? And yet, when it starts to get hard, they start complaining, we had it better off in Egypt. Why can't we just go back there? And you just, I mean, you're thinking like, how short can your memory possibly be? Once I was talking to an HR executive, and uh, we were just kind of talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but especially the human condition as it relates to organizational change. And he said something that's, that's always stuck with me. And he said, you know, people have a really short memory. That, was, that wasn't, there's, there's more to it, okay? People, yes, they do. They have a very short memory. And, and he went on to explain, he's like, you know, you could walk into an organization where, where it is misery. People hate coming to work. It's toxic. It's, it's just, it's, you're, you're hemorrhaging people. They're leaving all the time. You can come in as a leader and you can make immediate, massive impact. And it's like that place goes, you go from working there, it's total misery to, to it's just average. Now, as a leader, you look at that and you go, yeah, that's a massive improvement. Way to go. But people have a short memory. He said, you know, like a year from now, they won't, won't even remember how miserable it was. They'll just be thinking, this is average. What have you done for me lately? That's what the Israelites are saying to God and Moses and Aaron. Like, yeah, that was all great, but what have you done for us lately? And why that's remarkable is that they were slaves in Egypt and they're saying they want to go back there. I think it's because it was more comfortable. Listen, I I know that this is a message about learning to be content, especially with what God has provided for us. But this comfort thing is alive and well, probably in all of us. And it causes us to make some real dysfunctional decisions. And it's all in this pursuit of, I just, I just want to be comfortable. We would rather stay a slave if it means the status quo than freedom with a little uncertainty. I, I think I need an amen, right? No, we don't like uncertainty even if it means that it's, it's freedom. No, I, I think I'll just stay right here where it's not going to change, it's the status quo, but oh well, I'm a slave. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? No one would make that decision, except all of us, at some point in our life. It's this pursuit of comfort thing, and it's, it's alive and well in, in our societies and our families, and in me, 
And Israel's issue is the human issue. It's comfort-seeking. God decides to provide miraculously. He provides manna and quail for them. I mean, he's, he just gives it to them. The birds fly in over their camp at night and they just like drop. I mean, it couldn't get easier than this. And, um, and yet, just a short time later, they're standing on the verge of the promised land and they say this, that night, all the members of the, the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. I mean, this, this is again, this is happening. The whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better off for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's neurotic, Right? But I think it has to do with just, I'm uncomfortable. And it was better back there. We do this too. Greed is really, really, really easy to spot. Unless it's in us, then we can't see it. But in other people, it's ugly, isn't it? Oh, that's just greed. I feel like that's kind of easy to discern and call out and see. And yeah, I don't want to be like that. This is more subtle. But it's just as deadly to our soul. And it kills our contentment. So greed could be behind our desire to just stockpile resources. But more and more, at least as I look at my own life, I think it's this comfort thing. You know, like, how much does my retirement account really need to be for me to feel good about it? I don't know if I ever feel good about it. Why? Is it greed? Or is it just this pursuit of, I want to be comfortable, and it's just, I'm almost there, and when I get there, I'll get it. Um, You know, how, how high does my standard of living need to be? How open am I to depending on the Lord to provide for me and my family? What happens here is that we miss out on what the Lord has provided for us right now. And if we want to be content, it means that we first start taking stock of like what we have and what God has given and how good God is and it is enough and feeling thankful and reflecting upon that and, and, and having gratitude and, and being generous. I mean, all of these things we know in our mind is, is the life that we want to live or the things that we want to chase after, and yet so often we, we settle for second best and we just decide to, to take the comfort route or we take the stockpile resources route or, or whatever it might be. Let's stop doing that. Maxie Dunham, he's, a, he's a, a writer and he has a commentary in Exodus and he says, the happiest people I know are not those who have no needs, but those people who experience having their needs met by God. The happiest people aren't the people who have no needs. It's it's the people who have experienced God meeting their need. And he goes on to say, he says, there's another category of happy people I know. They're the ones who seem to have been extravagantly blessed with material resources, but know that what they have is indeed a blessing, a gift. It could be gone tomorrow. And so they accept it as manna every morning. I know people like that. You know people like that. 
I want to grow up to be a person like that, that sees what the Lord has provided as, this is just here today. I can't hoard it. It's going to be gone tomorrow. So I can share it. These blessings can be, you know, what I'm blessed with can become a blessing for others. Those are God's people. And that can only happen, I'm convinced, if it's a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because left to our own devices and our own human condition, you know, we're just greedy. We're just comfort seekers. But the gift of God that's found in Jesus Christ is that we can be different. And that through God's Holy Spirit power, He can change us from the inside out and transform us into being content people, joyful people, generous people. And what an amazing thing that would be. Please join me in prayer. Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in just wanting more and more and thinking that's going to satisfy. It doesn't. It's easy to get caught up in just chasing after a life of ease and wanting to be more comfortable. We know that's not the answer. So help us. Help, Help what we know in our head to move to our heart. Help the Holy Spirit to grow this deep seated sense of peace and contentment in our life of all that you've done for us. Do that, Lord, so that we can impact the world around us in your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.